Uh, so we're going to jump right in today. So like I have a pithy intro, just want to jump right into the context of where we're at. And so we're picking up in John 15. And we've been walking through the last days of Jesus the past couple of months. So we're going to see what was Jesus' final words, some of the final acts, and, uh, and what was going on before he made his way to the cross. And so back in chapter 13, we see Jesus at the last supper washing the disciples' feet. And during this time of washing of the disciples' feet, he says that somebody's going to betray them. And each of them asks the question of, is it me? Is it me? And it's interesting that they don't even say, is it Judas, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But Judas is revealed to be the one who is going to betray Christ. And so he leaves to betray Christ. And then Jesus walked them through of the sending of the Holy Spirit. And then we come to today at a very famous passage about Jesus being the true vine. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to see words like vine and fruit and love and joy. And the conclusion of this passage I'll give you at the beginning simply is this, is that a true disciple of Jesus will produce fruit that flows from abiding in Jesus. So as we walk through this passage, think about that and look at the careful use of that word true in the production of fruit. So let us get to our passage, John 15. Let us read together and it will be up on the screen. So John 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let me pray. Lord, what a striking passage. There's so much here, Lord, that today is not sufficient to be able to just expound on your word. There's so many different paths we could do on just thinking of your joy, your love, abiding you, the fruit that comes from abiding in you. And so, Lord, since we are insufficient, myself especially, please provide us with what we need for today. Help whatever in this passage that you want us to hear to stand out. May it be holy seed from your word that bears much fruit of righteousness. May you convict and correct us, Lord, 
May you change us. May you show us and remind us that this is about a relationship with you. Not just the doing of works. Not just in proclaiming. But the very foundation is having a relationship with you, abiding in you, being connected to the true vine. So help us to see that in your word. Help us where we've been led astray by thinking it is in us, it is by our strength, and whatever other lie that we are believing. Please correct our vision, our minds, and our hearts according to your word. And we thank you for your word that is before us today. And it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So let's jump in. So back into verse 1. So in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So we're going to start off with those first two words of I am. And so if you've been here with us going through John, you'll, that, will, that statement will stri- stand out to you. Because we've been seeing Jesus have these I am statements throughout the book of John. So he says, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And simply put, I am, in his reference to his deity. And so now we come to, I am the vine. And what an interesting reference of a vine. And for us, for who don't necessarily garden, except for one of us maybe, but for the majority of us who don't garden, a concept of a vine and wine is not something that's familiar to us. But for the people of Israel, this was something that their land was full of. So back in Deuteronomy 8.8, which you don't have to turn to, when God is talking about the land that they're getting ready to possess and talks about figs and different things, and one of the ones that stands out, he says that it's a land of vines. So this is what Israel was known for, that having many vines. But the vine is also used constantly with Israel of their judgment. And so we're going to look at a couple passages and seeing when Israel is also called the vine of God and seeing what is it in reference to. So there's going to be a couple passages coming up on the screen, starting off in Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. So in Hosea 10, starting in verse 1, it says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So in the first reference that we see in Hosea of Israel being a vine and the production that they have, we see that they built more altars. They were chasing after idols. Though God was making them fruitful, they were using the fruit that God was giving them for their own benefit to chase after other gods. And God tells us what is the conclusion of that destruction. He will break down their walls. And as we see with Israel, as they're sent into exile and they're breaking down, we'll see this constant theme with them. So another one coming up, Jeremiah 2, 21. So it says, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And this one is interesting. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word of choice can also be translated as true. And so we see how Israel is called the true vine that God has planted. But the problem is, the seed that he has planted, they have turned wild. 
They have gone astray. And as we'll continue on in Jeremiah, but we're not going to go there now, you'll see Israel chasing after idols. So again, the vine being connected to their idolatry. And so our next one in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. So it says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so we see clearly of what is the vine, what is the vineyard, and the conclusion of what happens with Israel as this vineyard. This vine's inside of God's vineyard. And it's that Israel, a vine that the Lord has planted to produce fruit, good fruit, had yielded wild fruit. They have gone after idols, and God will judge them for that. And so as we see Jesus calling himself the true vine, it's in contrast to who Israel was. Jesus being the one who did stay faithful to the Father, who did not yield wild fruit, but produced good fruit. And this is interesting for us to think about, that Jesus takes this image that was applied to Israel and applies it to himself. And this helps to make a transition for us as the people of God. So the people of God go from being identified with a nation, their ethnicity, to a person. And so the vine being once represented by Israel is now represented by Christ. Let us meditate and think about that transition. And it's not for us as the church to replace Israel. This comparison is between Jesus and Israel. And so the people of God, the church, are identified with a person, Jesus Christ, no longer their national identity. As we see also that the Father is the vine dresser, the one who cares for this vine, the one who prunes this vine, the one that cultivates this vine. He is the one that cares for Christ. He is the one who cares for his body, for his people. And in verse 2, we're going to see what does that care look like. But before we move on to verse 2, I'm just thinking about what it means to cultivate a plant. And I had the opportunity before service to talk to Becky, and she was to reference one of her plants that she had that it's about patience, that there was a plant that she thought was dead for about nine months. And by now, it's, it's grown and it's fruitful. But there was a patience that came with that plant. And what a perfect picture of how God is with us, how patient he is, how long-suffering he is, how he doesn't just see a mistake and say, all right, I'm done with them. 
but he patiently cultivates. And that is what we see of the vine dresser caring for the vine, is a patience and care and intention and seeing it step by step. And we see God as the vine dresser. So we're going to see what does that look like in verse 2. So in verse 2 it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, I was joking about it in um, an opening prayer of, I get hit with a lot of the controversial passages. um, And this is another one of them because often people come to the end Christ and their conclusion is we can lose our salvation. Because how can you be in me and yet be taken away? So simply put, I would say that is not the case at all here. And as we go through this, you will see it made plainly and very clear why that is not the case. And so first, I want to give three reasons of why somebody can be in the people who got in Christ and be taken away. And how that is not losing salvation. Because the very first one, which we've been going through, and if you guys will remember, that Jesus says that none can snap his sheep, snap, take his sheep away from him. That none can pluck them away. So there's security, not because of the sheep, but because of the one who holds them, the one who cares them. So that being first and foremost, the reason why you do not lose your salvation is because of Christ and Christ alone. It is only by him that we are able to be sustained. And so the second two, I want to give a historical example and then an immediate example when looking at where, John, where Jesus is at in John 15. So starting off first with the historical if you guys can turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5, the page number will be up on the screen if you have one of the pew Bibles. So 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. So he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And this is important right here in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And so we see from the history of Israel that there were people who got to experience to be a part of the people of God. But as Paul even tells us, not all Israel is true Israel. There are those who are a part of the community of faith who are not actually Christ. They are not his people. And so we see this with Israel. And so then the present example in John 15, as we talk back about Judas betraying Jesus, we realize Judas was a disciple. He was following after Christ. He probably even cast out demons. Because we said they were sent off, and there's at least nothing in Scripture that says that anybody had any suspicions or were worrying about Judas. Even to the point where that he was betraying. Some believed that he was going to get bread. He was going to go prepare for the feast. And so we see in Judas another example of somebody being with Christ, seeing and hearing, but yet he is not a true disciple. He did not remain. I know for us that can cause concern of, well, what does it mean to remain? What if I struggle? What if I fall in this particular area? And again, I want to give you another assurance that it is only in Christ. It is only by him that we can stay. Because if you could lose your salvation, then you would. Simply put, we fall short. 
far too often. Our hearts wander, and if it was not for the Lord correcting us, guiding us back, we would lose. We would walk away. We would fall away. We would go after every single inclination of our heart if it was not for him. So again, our rest is in Christ. So let's continue on. So after he talks about the father taking away the branch, he says, in every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So for the branches that are bearing a fruit, and this is the difference between the branches that do and do not, is the bearing, bearing of fruit. He prunes. And this word prune is interesting because it's better translated cleanse. It has the same root word as that taking away. And so we see that the Father in cultivating and caring for the vine, that he takes away the dead branches and he prunes the branches that are producing fruit. And so as we go into verse 3, we're going to see how does he prune these branches and remember this cleansing word. So in verse 3, it says, Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So we see that the word has cleansed us, justification. And the word also prunes us, sanctification. It cleanses us. And so we see in one that the word will cast out to take away those who do not belong to the vine. But it also will take away that which is in us that does not belong to the vine. So we see a taking away on both sides for one for their good, one for their damnation. And so we see this as the work of the Father. And this passage again should remind us as we look back in John 13, verse 10. So John 13, 10 says, Jesus said to them, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So we see the same image that he used with the washing of their feet. And remember, Peter says, not just my feet, but my whole entire body. Jesus says, if he does not wash you, if he does not cleanse you, then you have no part in him. And so for those who are part of Christ, they have been clean, justified. And you are being sanctified by the cleansing of his word. So now what about this question of fruit? As he talks about bearing a fruit, what is fruit? And so this another one was passionate to strike in our memory of Galatians 5.22. Well, it tells us what of the fruit of the Spirit, and that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So as we think of fruitless, think of that the fruit of the Spirit. And all of these, this love, joy, peace, patience, can be boiled down to godliness. And the guys, that should be a word that strikes us as we're going through a study of the disciplines that lead us to godliness. As we think of conformity and closeness to Christ. As we look at our lives and see, do we conform? Do we look like him? Do we interact? Do we do what he did? And then our closeness, our intimacy, our abiding. This is the fruit that he's talking about. This is what we should strive for. This is the fruit that he's calling us to bear is that in our minds, our head, our thinking has changed, that it conforms and is close to Christ. In our works, the things that we do with our hands, they conform and are close to Christ. 
And our very desires, our emotions, they conform and are close to Christ. This is the fruit that the Father produces by the seed of his word. And this is foundational for us. This is foundational for abiding in Christ, his word, his word that plants a good seed in us that it may produce fruit. And so in these first couple of verses, we see that the word of God cleanses the vine of branches that don't belong and cleanses the branches that do belong. And so after establishing his relationship with the branches, Jesus gives his first command in the passage in verse 4. So in verse 4, we see, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Christ. Abide in me. So we come to this word, abide, and we're going to see it over and over again. So we know it is very important to this passage, the many times that we see abide. And it's not a complex word. It's not anything, honestly, just complex, but it's to remain, it's to stay, to endure, to persevere. So Christ is calling us to remain with him, to stay in him, to endure. And for many of us, we know this as we hear the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, of the once saved, always saved. And as we'll see that that abiding, that ability for us to endure, to make it to the end, that salvation is not just a static one-time event, but it's progressive. We're growing in our sanctification. We are saved. We are justified. We are being saved, sanctified, and we will be saved. We are glorified. And so we see this process of us enduring unto the end is Jesus keeping us to the end. And this is the difference between those who are of him they will endure to the end versus those who are not of him, who will be taken away, fall away. And we'll see in verse 6 what their fate is for those who do not abide in Christ. And also we see in, in this passage in verse 4, it says, abide in me and, and I in you. So this abiding is initiated by Christ. It is his abiding in us that enables us to abide in him. And why this is so important, he uses, goes back to this analogy of the vine and its branches. And any of us can pick up a branch outside and we see that it's dead. It snaps real quickly. It's easily. It cannot bear any fruit. It has no life. Its life source, the vine, has been removed. It cannot bear any longer. So as we have that image, it'll help us to understand what he's getting at in verse 5. Have that image of a branch being broken off from a vine. So in verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So we see Jesus beginning this off with restating his relationship with the branches, that he is the vine, they are the branches, that they should abide in him. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What is this nothing that he's speaking about? And that's why I said in verse 4 helps us to understand the nothing, that we cannot bear any good fruit, because a branch apart from the vine cannot bear fruit. 
And a Christian apart from Christ cannot bear fruit. And so the question I have for myself, and I've been thinking about this, and for us as a people of God, as we sit here today and we think of Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a little bit, not something, not majority of the things, but nothing. And the question is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that apart from Christ, we can do nothing? Do we, does our life demonstrate that? Do we just say that in word and we believe in our head, but our lives look contrary? Do we really believe that apart from him, we can do nothing? We can bear no good fruit apart from Christ. That's something for us to really examine ourselves and to think about. Because that is soul searching. It, it makes us realize that is Jesus just a contingency plan? Is he just the one that we call on only in times of desperation? And this is a particular danger for us. Because I'm thankful to God that we are very solid theologically. We understand the word. We know how to break it down. One of the dangers comes is when we only understand it in word. It only has reached our mind. We only know how to communicate it, but our lives are opposite. That should weigh heavy on us, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Let us think about that. Are we trusting in him? When we're making our decisions, we're thinking about what job to take, what school to send our, kill, our children to, should they be homeschooled. We're thinking about just all these different events of our life, even our daily life. Is it in contemplation, meditating on, abiding in Christ? Or is he just the end of our day? When he's come home to say our last prayers. Is he just a part or is he a part of our whole entire day, our whole life? Are we abiding in Christ? Are we really meditating and thinking about this? That apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. That has to sink deep into us and that make us recognize that the point of the gospel, the reason that we are saved, is so that we can be united to Christ. That is what he's drawn us to, is himself, this relationship, this unity. That's the foundation. That's what this is all about. And when we lose focus of that, when it becomes about other things, when it becomes about just doing good works, apart from unity with him, we have lost our focus. We have lost the basis of what he has saved us to. That is primarily himself. We have been brought in. And especially for us, as we see in Romans 10, for us who were not Jewish, we are not Jewish, how he has brought us in. He has fastened us with him. Let us recognize that and realize how fortunate, how gracious he is to draw us in, that we may abide with him, have a relationship with him. We're going to elaborate on that a little bit more about just how great that is that we get to enjoy a relationship with God. So let's move to verse 6 and to see what is the fate of those who he takes away. So in verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So we're going to turn to a passage that's going to help to see this similar language that was used back in Ezekiel. 
So it'll be Ezekiel 15. The page number for the Pew Bibles will be up on the screen if you'd like to turn there. So in Ezekiel 15, you see a prophecy of, or God pronouncing judgment upon Israel in Jerusalem. So he says, starting in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred, can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because... They have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So we see this casting of the branches to the fire, that they are for fuel, is a judgment. And that is what is for those who do not abide in Christ. We can't sugarcoat it. It's a warning. If we do not abide in him, our only fate is hell. Is damnation to be burned. And I pray we don't take that lightly. As we recognize, as we sit here today, as our hearts are being examined by the word of God and and meditating on are we abiding in Christ. I pray for you that if your heart feels like this is just a show, that you're just going along with the motions, that you may turn, that you will see the warning here and turn and find that this is not the path that you want to go. That you don't want to continue unabiding in Christ. That you're going after the world. That you won't be thrown away, but that you may turn and abide in him. Find life in him. Be sustained by him. Because the consequence ultimately, the same thing as God pronounces judgment upon Israel. is the same judgment that he pronounced upon those who do not remain in Christ. It's hell. It's damnation. It's to be burned. So let us not take that lightly in our own lives and for those of us around here. Those that we run into, those who proclaim the name of Christ. Let us actually know him, actually abiding in him, and not just in word, but our lives demonstrate that we are abiding in knowing our Lord and Savior. So now let's continue on into verse 7. So verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I'm not going to get deep into this because Tim spent some time on this. If you guys go back two weeks ago online, we have the sermons back in chapter 14, starting in verse 14. Um, So I'm not going to get deep into this, but just want to reiterate how there's a caveat to the asking because a lot of people take, all right, we ask whatever we want, but it's precluded by the abiding. The abiding enables the asking. 
And so we see that an evidence of us abiding is him hearing our prayers. That is the evidence of salvation, is that as we abide, he hears our prayers. So I encourage you to go back and listen to the message. It expounds upon it a lot more. But just wanted to reiterate that as we come to this passage, that we're reminded that as we abide in him, he hears us. That's a comfort. That's a joy to know that he hears us as we abide in him. And so let's continue on into verse 8. So verse 8 says, By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So this verse right here is key in this passage. That those who bear fruit prove to be the real disciples. They prove to be the one who are actually attached to the vine. And we see that in contrast to the ones who fall away, who bear no fruit. And as we think about this concept of fruit, and and he puts a word before it, he says, much fruit. And as I was reading through this and thinking about this, that much stood out. Because often we just ask God for the minimum. Just provide for us, make sure that we're good, make sure our families are comfortable, make sure that we have good jobs, good homes, the bare minimum. Why don't we ask for more? Why don't we trust God to do so much more? And I'm not talking about just things and platforms. Come on, in us. How often we sell God short that we think because we're struggling, that means that, well, there's no hope. I'm just going to end up in this sin and it's just going to always be a problem. Do we really believe that God can bear much fruit, an abundant fruit in us? That he can do mighty things in us? Let's not just bear enough fruit to be called a believer. Let's not look for just the bare minimum. But see how far, how wide, how amazing what the Lord can do in our lives. Let's trust him. We realize this is the God of the universe who has created all things. He has brought you to life if you know him. You were dead. How much more can he do? You see this even in in Romans 8.32 where it talks about him giving the son. How much more will he do for us? Just imagine that. He did not spare his son for us. Let his son be crucified, to be shamed, spit on, to be subjected to such humiliation for us that we may know him, that we may abide in him. How much more? Let us not sell God short. Let us trust him that he will bear much fruit in us if we abide in him. The harvest will be plentiful. That we see amazing things that the Lord can do in our lives and in the lives of others. Let's, let us not sell our God, our God short. And so as I said, this much fruit, this bearing of fruit is a mark of a disciple. And so the same way how a tree must bear fruit that we know that is a, it is alive, the same way for the Christian is a natural flowing of our relationship with Christ. That if we abide with him, we will bear fruit. And we even see this in Ephesians 2. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 8 is the, the best part. We all enjoy that part. By grace you have been saved. But if we continue on, there's a purpose for that salvation. We are his workmanship, created for good works. There's a purpose for him 
saving us, of justifying us. It's not just for us to say we're good, we're not going to, have it, to hell. We're not going to be damned, so we're good. We can do whatever what we want. The purpose is so that we will do good works and prove to be his disciple and glorify the Father by this. So let us trust God that he will sustain us, he will cause this fruit to grow, and that he will do amazing things. Let us abide in him, remain in him, and stay in him. So let's continue on to verse 9. So as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And I know it's a, I gotta watch how I say it. Um, so focus on those first two letters, because I don't want to say it the wrong way, but just focus on those two letters of as. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to think about, that the unchanging love, delight, and affection that the Father has for Jesus. Jesus says he loves us like that. And as I read that, I'm just like, nah, they got to explain that away. It's not really like, it's not the same. There must be something to explain that away. No. The love that he has for us is so profound that it is beyond our imagination. Just as we've been going through John, we've seen this relationship between the Father and the Son and how intimate, how much the Son delights in the Father, how much the Father loves in the Son. He says, this is my Son who I'm well pleased. And so we, we see the Son then say, how the Father has loved him, he loves us. Broken people who sin who fall short, who do not love him at all times, who we are changing and wondering, can you really delight in us? But he says he does. And this is not because you do good things, but he delights in us. He has saved us. That delighting in us and saving us and loving us was before we were born. As we see in 1 John 5, where it talks about we love him because he first loved us. What an amazing thing to stop and just meditate on. The love of Christ for us. How amazing it is. And so when we begin to doubt, we struggle with our circumstances, our situation. We struggle with abiding. And we feel like oh, he doesn't want nothing to do with me. Or he's just bringing nothing but bad things upon me. Think about this love. Think about the love that he has for his people the love that he has for his branches. It's profound. It is amazing. And we will spend eternity searching it out because we cannot exhaust his love, how amazing it is. So in, in, when in times of doubt, be reminded that he loves us and not with just a cheap love of I love you based off what you do, but that he loves us. So let's continue on into verse 10. So in verse 10, it says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. So as he calls us to abide in his love, he tells it by keeping his commandments. And so as we think about obedience, there's the tendency to get scared of that because we feel like, oh, it's turning into legalism and we're just keeping the good works. But Jesus connects the two. 
To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. And to obey Jesus is to love Jesus. And so as we go back, whenever you have time, look at what Jesus actually is commanding us. Because often we think of like, oh, it's this horrible thing that I have to do or something I really don't feel like doing. But even this command that he just gave us, abide in him. He's commanding us to do that which is good, which is for our benefit, for, which is best for us. He's saying, remain where there's life. Endure where there is life. Come to be sustained. That's the command that he's giving us. And so often we can be led astray. It's like, I don't feel like keeping up all this stuff. I'd rather go do these other things. And yet, still saying that we love Christ. But Jesus does not separate those two. And his basis for that is the same way that his relationship was for the Father. Really, in John, where he says his food is to do his Father's will. You see, the delight that Jesus had in obeying the Father, his submission to the Father, it was not begrudgingly. It's because he knew that his Father cared for him, that his Father loved him, and their relationship was central. And so all the extra, the obeying the commandments were extra, but the foundation was in his identity, which we're going to see is so important as we come to verse 11. So verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, as we see, as we start off, these things have I spoken to you. So referring back to these first ten verses that Jesus is talking about. And this was an easy one to find what the point is, because Jesus tells us what is the point of these past couple of verses. He tells us simply, is that we may have his joy. And that our joy may be full. And so what is this joy that Jesus had? And how does it connect to our joy? And how can our joy be full because of Jesus' joy? So as I said from the prior verse, that Jesus' joy was based on his identity, his relationship with the Father. And so in that same way, our joy is based on our identity, our relationship with the Father. And what that means is circumstances and situations may change. You will go through ups and downs. But we still rejoice because we know him. We are in union with him. Though the world may be shifting and shaking, he still remains unchanging. And so that is the joy that Jesus has. And that is a joy that he gives to us. And it's not as if these two joys are separate. They are unified. Our joy and his joy merge. It, his joy becomes our joy. And so in that same way that he could abide in the love of the Father, of obeying the Father, he then calls us to do the same. But often with this, our joy can be broken. Because often it's sin. Tanya had a reference, Psalm 51. And David just pouring out about the brokenness of his sin. And there's something interesting that he says in Psalm 51, verse 12, where he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say, Save me again, restore salvation, but the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of our union. Restore to me the joy of being in communion with you. That's what sin does. To, it breaks that. 
It hinders our relationship with him. And so in this abiding, Christ is calling us, stay faithful to him, endure, commit to him, that your joy may be full because you can only find joy in him. We can only be sustained in him. It is only in him that we find joy. So as we think about reasons why our joy can be broken, especially when it comes to our sins, let us see sin as not just something to be played with or just a simple mistake, but it's breaking which is most crucial to us, which is most foundational, our relationship and union with Christ. And as I said before about this abiding, this conformity and closeness changing us, so we've thought about the ways to change our thinking. It's changing the good works that are being produced. It's changing our emotions. It's changing the way that we feel. It's changing the way we express. And so for us as believers, we can have joy. Joy that is unspeakable. And it's because of our identity and relationship with Christ. And we see this throughout history. People marvel at some of the things that Christians have done, how they've remained rejoicing. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it especially in the New Testament as Paul is being persecuted, but he says, still I rejoice. And even we watched a movie this past Friday. It was called The American Gospel, and it got to this point with this lady where she had so many diseases. And so she went from CrossFit to basically she's living off a tube that's not even going to her stomach but straight to her intestines. That's how bad it is for her. She has these crazy incurable diseases that she's stuck with. And I remember just sitting there watching that and thinking like, from the out, and she says this also, that from the outside looking in, you would think, all right, life is miserable basically because she has all these different problems, all these different issues. But what struck me is, she says, I'm so much happier. I have so much more joy compared to what she was before. It wasn't because her situation got better. It wasn't because she was really healthy. It's because of Christ. Her identity and relationship with him superseded every present circumstance. And so for us as believers, that's what we are to demonstrate. That the joy of being found in Christ supersedes every single care of this world. So whether we have much, whether we have little, whether we are persecuted or praised, we can be content in Christ and have joy in him and rejoice. So as we come to a close, as we see this abiding in Christ, of us as branches being attached to the vine, that is where we find life. That is where we are sustained. That is where the seed of the word bears fruit is only in Christ. And we see that the reason why we're able to even continue on is because Christ sustains us. And so our hope for endurance, our hope to make it to the end, our hope to bear fruit, our hope completely must be in Christ, in Christ alone. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. We will not produce joy. It would be dead works. So as we close, I wanted to read a passage from Luke 10, verse 17 through 20, which is interesting what Jesus tells them to do after sending out the disciples and they're casting out demons. And so they come back and they're giving their report to Jesus. 
And so this is an amazing thing. And I want you to really think about what they say as their last word. What Jesus tells them to rejoice in. So Luke 10, starting in verse 17. says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This key word right here. Nevertheless, do you rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you? But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So that's where we end off is that we may do great things. There's the power to do many things. The joy comes from our names being written in heaven, our names being in Christ. Let us close. Lord, what a sweet thing it is to be able to rejoice. (laughs) As I even think of David, his broken bones. Lord, what your word has convicted us, Lord. May we still rejoice. May you cause these bones to rejoice. May you cause these lives to rejoice. And the reason that we rejoice is because you have drawn us in. You have sustained us. You will preserve us. You will give us the strength to endure. It's not just to do good works. Not just from the benefits. Simply for union with you. Help us remember this is the gospel. We have been welcomed into your family. We have been unified with you your blood has cleansed us and that we are clean out of our own works but by you and so we praise you for this today I pray that your word may do its work in our hearts as we meditate on this word as we think deeply of how you are calling us to change Lord to find those areas where we are not abiding We are still believing that it is in our strength that we can do something apart from you. Help us to remember that life only flows from you. We thank you for that. It is in your name we pray, and we praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Amen.